Good afternoon. Welcome. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Very glad you are along for the ride today. My guest today is Shante Jackson. She's the director of the Baltimore Mayor's Office of Neighborhood Safety and Engagement. Director Jackson is in charge of implementing Mayor Brandon Scott's plan to reduce violence in Baltimore City. At the heart of that plan is the GVRS, or Group Violence Reduction Strategy, a pilot of which was begun last year in the Western District. Monsi, the Mayor's Office of Neighborhood Safety and Engagement, has announced that it will be expanded. This GVRS uh, program will be expanded to include other areas of the city soon. Director Jackson joins us on Zoom. You are welcome to join us as well. Our number 410-662-8780. Our email is midday at wypr.org. And you can tweet us at midday. WYPR. Director Jackson, welcome back. Good to talk to you. Tom, it's good to be here. Thank you. So let's start at the beginning, um, because there are folks who I think uh, may not have a solid notion of what is actually involved in this group violence reduction strategy, GVRS. Give us an overview uh, of the, the, the tenets of this plan. Yeah, I appreciate the fact that we're going to the basics um, for folks who might just be get, getting caught up. So the group violence reduction strategy is also known as focused deterrence. It is a methodology that was created by Dr. David Kennedy um, well over a decade ago and one that when developed and implemented with fidelity has demonstrated um, marked decreases, sustained decreases in fatals and non-fatal shootings in cities anywhere between 30 and 60%. And so the three tenets that really make up um, this work are associated with community moral voice, right? So making sure that you have um, folks who are of the community very much um, vocalizing around what's acceptable and what's not acceptable from a community perspective, but also who have lived experience and who are relatable to the folks who are at the highest risk of being shot or being a shooter. And when you're talking about community, let me just uh, ask this one little question. You're talking about the direct community. You're not talking about, you know, Baltimore at large. You're talking about this neighborhood, that neighborhood, uh, the families and the folks who live in specific communities within our city, right? Absolutely. I'm talking about the real people, right? I'm talking about the folks that are um, your neighbors. I'm talking about the folks that um, you know that their son was shot when you were younger and she's responsible for raising um, what used to be your friend's children or grandchildren now. I'm talking about um, those folks in the neighborhood that that are um, for all intents and purposes, your surrogate moms, your surrogate uncles, your surrogate cousins, um, folks that can directly relate to your lived experience and who also share portions of your lived experience, which is what makes them credible. Great. The second component associated with the work is service provision. And so making sure that as we identify folks who are at the highest risk of being shot or being a shooter, um, opportunities that they need to walk away from potentially violent lives um, and being very real and honest about what that service provision looks like. So not with the lip service, but actually figuring out what folks need, whether that's rental assistance, whether they need to be relocated because they um, may be likely to become a victim, um, whether they need 
training for employment purposes or photo identification, anything uh, and everything necessary to remove barriers that are preventing you from taking advantage of opportunity to live your full self. So we've got two service providers uh, that are partnering with us to do that work based on age group. And then the third component, and um, quite frankly, I'm going to be really clear that this is the, the path that we want to travel down least, but a path that we will absolutely take if we have to, is the law enforcement component. So when we identify folks who are at highest risk of being shot or being a shooter, we are offering them opportunity. And we're also being really clear in saying we want the violence to stop. If you are not willing to stop the violence, we will be bringing down the full weight of our law enforcement and prosecutorial systems because we just won't tolerate violence in our communities anymore. And so that law enforcement approach is also uh, one that makes up this three-legged stool, if you will, around this strategy and why um uh, why it's successful is because we employ all three components. And talk to the the criticism you get from, uh, particularly from people on the political right, about the fact that the law enforcement component of the GVRS is uh, the sort of last resort rather than the first move. Um, when there was a uh, when you made uh, an announcement about plans to expand the GVRS pilot program from the Western District to a couple of other districts, and we'll talk about uh, how that's going in a minute. Um, the Fraternal Order of Police here in Baltimore uh, sent out a, a, a message uh, that included this sentence. This is from Mike Mancuso, the uh, president of the FOP there. He said, this nonsense that you can't arrest your way out of the problem is ridiculous. Um, he's saying, you know, the, the way to solve uh, violence in Baltimore is simply get these, you know, the, one, one former police chief used to call it bad guys with guns off the streets. So uh, he's saying we can arrest our way out of this problem. Um, you're, you're looking at it from a different perspective. Yes. So um, again, I'm not going to speak directly to um, any uh, statements coming um, from the fraternal order of police. But I, what I will share is this, that if um, arresting our way out of the problem was going to fix the problem, it would have fixed the problem decades ago. Yeah. <laughs> and it hasn't uh, addressed that issue in the long term. Um, and as a result of entering into past practices and policies where we thought arresting our way out of the problem was the answer. We have only perpetuated long-term issues associated with that work. I mean, when we've done our problem analysis in which we've taken a look at what the, the victims and the perpetrators of violence look like in the Western District, more than a third of those folks had been home from being incarcerated for less than a year. And so if arresting folks was going to be the problem and not rehabilitation and not um, opportunity provision, we would have solved this a while ago. Um, I would also offer, Tom, that the proof is in the numbers, right? And so year over year, Baltimore City is looking at a 22.2% reduction of homicides, 
a 25.2% reduction in non-fatal shootings. And in the Western District, where the pilot launched last year, we finished 35% down in aggregate across non-fatals and fatal shootings last year. And right now, when we compare last year to this year, we're down 52.3% in non-fatal and fatal shootings in what was the most violent district in our city historically as it relates to gun violence. And so just because the law enforcement approach isn't the first approach, doesn't mean that we aren't seeing gains, that we aren't seeing wins. We're seeing lives saved here. And let's put that in uh, in different terms. Citywide, as of today, as of this morning, uh, mm-hmm. last year, on the last day of February, uh, there were 54 uh, homicides reported in our city. This year, today, the last day of February, it's 42. Uh, so that is certainly, you know, it's a significant uh, reduction. It's, you know, 16 or so people left. Uh, less. And then in terms of non-fatal shootings, the, the disparity is even greater. There were 107 people who had been shot without being killed uh, as of this date back in 2022. As of today, that number is at 80. So it's still 80 people being shot, 42 people being killed. Uh, Lord knows that's not acceptable. Lord knows that is incredibly sad for all of those families and for all of those communities. But uh, there are some signs. Now, this is citywide. It's not just in the Western District. And you're saying that, uh, and I don't have those numbers right in front of me, but the, the numbers in the Western District are even uh, better. So let's talk about you. You, you. you did this pilot program in the Western District uh, because it was the district uh, that kind of needed it most. Um, so what, what did you implement? This went into effect in January of 2022. So it's been there for... 13, 14 months, whatever. Um, tell us tell us the things that you implemented there uh, that have resulted uh, in, the, in the in the kind of numbers you've just talked about. Right. So going back to and thanks for contextualizing, you know, the year over year numbers for um, Baltimoreans, uh, Tom. So going back to the the opening of our conversation, we implemented that three legged stool. Right. We have honored Mayor Scott's commitment that this time around the group violence reduction strategy was going to not only um, ensure that there was political alignment around the three principles, him, uh, the police commissioner, the state's attorney, but we've even um, gone a bit further than that by making sure that we are partnering with the U.S. Attorney's Office, with the Department of Parole and Probation, with DJS, um, with the attorney general's office. And so we're seeing a level of partnership that we've never seen before um, to tamp violence down in our city. And with that initial focus on the Western, that political will went far. And we continue to leverage that political will in ways that afford folks the opportunity to take advantage of being able to move if they need to, if that's what's going to keep them safe, alive and free. Um, getting the job training that they need, getting the mental health supports and the cognitive behavioral therapy that they need. Because to this point about law enforcement only, GVRS is about realizing that an act of violence doesn't start or end when somebody pulls the trigger. There are so many points along the way where we know we can step up and we can intervene. And that's what this strategy does. And so leveraging those three approaches, we've not only 
been able to, you know, provide direct communications um, out to um, almost a hundred folks now and, and seeing folks take advantages of services by ROCA and by YAP, but we've also effectuated some arrests. So I, I don't want to act like um, everyone's going to make the right decision, the best decision for the community. There are consequences either way. They're either going to be punitive consequences or opportunities uh, associated, positive opportunity associated with those consequences. Um, but the Western proved to be a successful demonstration project, and we are in the Southwestern District now. And Southwestern uh, is the second uh, district there you want to uh, expand the GVRS strategy too. So uh, what does it take? Um, obviously, uh, scaling this up citywide is a is a is an ultimate aspiration, uh, but that's not easy. It takes a lot of people. Um, I, I assume that uh, funding is not an issue at this juncture, given we've got ARPA funds, we've got uh, commitments from the state uh, that, that were, were, were not made in the past uh, because there was a pretty significant difference of opinion as to how to approach this problem between uh, the former governor and uh, the current mayor. Those differences have uh, been considerably attenuated between the current governor, who's just taken office, and, and our mayor. But um, what, is it, what does it require to expand this from the western to the southwestern district? And then, uh, as I understand it, the next district to see this program implemented would be the central district. That's right. That's right. Um, so first I'll say that it requires um, engagement at the community level, right? Um, we talked about community moral voice being a critical component here. And so we aren't just jumping from one district to the next. Uh, the GVRS team has been really thoughtful about engaging with community neighborhood associations in the Southwestern District engaging with both those traditional and non-traditional leaders um, in the district. But we've also leveraged those community moral voices in the Western district because those districts are adjacent to each other to say, who do you know in the Southwestern district that you know um, has connections with folks that are either um, teetering on the line or who, who may have stepped over the line that we need to um, kind of pull back uh, away from um, some opportunity there. So making sure that we're having those awareness and education sessions with um, each of the districts before going in so that we're not going in there gangbusters has been critically important and really well received from the Southwestern District. When we do that, we then invite folks to determine whether or not they wanna be a part of the community moral voice work because while a lot of folks are interested, everyone's not built for it, Tom. Yeah, it's really <laughs> delicate work, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. And so there's training that our technical advisors and uh, the mayor's office of neighborhood safety and engagement provide to community based partners who are interested in being community moral voice um, members. And we even go through uh, what we call kind of like a protected trial run, if you will, where you're not necessarily going to um, someone's house, for example, but that you're meeting with someone as they're meeting with their their probation officer, right? Um, the other components associated with this is making sure that we're preparing the district, right, from a BPD perspective with regard to us coming there, um, working through a problem analysis to understand how much of 
the violence is group involved there because the focus is on reducing group involved gun violence. It's about making sure um, that we've got a scorecard built for them. And, you know, just to educate Baltimoreans, when we when we talk about a scorecard, it is about making sure that we're building out the historical events and context associated with group violence so that we know who we should be engaging from a community and service partnership perspective and who we should be targeting from a strategic enforcement perspective. So there are four criteria that we kind of walk through um, that Baltimore can use to determine whether or not GVRS is in a district or not. Shante Jackson is the director of the Mayor's Office of Neighborhood Safety and Engagement here in Baltimore. We're going to take a quick break, and we will have more with Director Jackson after that break takes place. You can join us, 410-662-8780, or email midday at wipr.org. You can tweet us at midday wipr, especially if you're in the Western District, especially if you're in the Southwestern District. We would love to hear from you. What's your take? What's your perception of the level of violence on the streets and the neighborhoods in which you live? Give us a call, 410-662-8780. Join the conversation here on Midday. We'll be right back. This is 88.1 WYPR. And welcome back. It's Midday. I'm Tom Hall. By the way, coming up on the show tomorrow, it's Midday on Foreign Affairs. I visited Israel a couple of weeks ago, and I interviewed several people at a protest rally against the Israeli government's plan to weaken Israeli courts. And since I attended that rally and conducted those interviews, Israelis and Palestinians have experienced heightened tension and the most violence that that area has seen in a decade. Tomorrow, we'll hear from some of the people at the protest and talk about the relationship, if there is one, between the hard-right government's response to the protests and to the escalating violence in the West Bank. I'll talk about it with Samuel Sokol. He's a reporter for the Israeli newspaper Haaretz. Plus, as the war in Ukraine enters its second bloody year, we'll check in with Eric Hans of the Center for Accountable Investment at the Center for International Private Enterprise. He's a U.S. lawyer and consultant who has worked in Ukraine for years. We will get his perspective on the chances for an end to the conflict in Ukraine. So that's coming up tomorrow here on Midday. If you've just joined us today, we're talking about ways to reduce violence in the city of Baltimore with Shante Jackson, the director of the Mayor's Office of Neighborhood Safety and Engagement. We'd love to engage you in our conversation. 410-662-8780, our email midday at wipr.org. You can tweet us at midday. WIPR. Director Jackson is generous with her time. She's been on the show several times in the past. She will be on the show uh, as we move forward in the future to give us updates, to give us status reports about what's going on with the city's efforts to combat violence. So, Director Jackson, we have a question from Gabe that uh, is one that I had on my list to ask you as well. Um, He says it's widely reported that crime in big cities across America fell in 2022. 
and I would just say to Gabe that I wasn't aware of that wide reporting myself. Um, how do we know GVRS is working to reduce crime in Baltimore if rates are already falling nationally? Uh, and has GVRS shown results in other cities? And of course, our partners at the Baltimore Banner did an extensive report about a month ago uh, about GVRS and about the the efficacy of this program uh, and, and mentioned cities like Boston and New Orleans as places where, in fact, this has uh, shown, uh, you know, similar promising results. So so this is this is a data-based uh, approach, isn't it, Director Jackson? This is absolutely a data-driven approach. Gabe, thank you for your question. I will echo uh, Tom's sentiments that I was not aware of the fact that there had been a national trend, uh, if you will, around gun violence reduction. Um, I would offer that the partners who I work most closely with while across the country, while some of them have indicated that they've seen some reductions, um, overwhelmingly, many of us have begun to adopt if they haven't already adopted um, what you saw Mayor Scott lead the way in adopting two years ago, which is this dual integrated approach of gun violence reduction, uh, where you see focused deterrence and community violence intervention kind of intertwining um, amongst themselves with regard to how certain we can be that we're affecting change. I, like, I literally want to put some numbers out there. So we went into the Western District, as Tom mentioned before, because it was one of the deadliest districts. When we did the problem analysis, we saw 818 people over a five-year period either be shot or murdered in the Western District. And by the end, and it hands down being the most violent district as it relates to gun violence in our city across the board. At the end of the year last year, 53 more people were alive at the end of the year than there were the year before when we compared the numbers around um, uh, fatals and non-fatal shootings. And so uh, while obviously GVRS is not taking credit for every single person's decision to put down a gun or not to engage in violence, we are absolutely saying that the work of community moral voice of offering opportunity of actually seeing folks in their lived experience and letting folks know by demonstrating very clearly that making the decision to stay involved in violence will have punitive consequences had significant impact. 410-662-8780. That's our phone number. Our email is midday at wipr.org. You can tweet us at midday. WIPR. Let's go to the phones. Ray is on the line. Ray, I understand you're a student at the University of Maryland. What's your question for Director Jackson? Good afternoon, Dr. Jackson. My question to you is, are there any plans to speak to regular patrol officers um, so you can, one, inform them what it is that the GVRS is all about so that they can better support and implement the plan, and two, to glean knowledge from the post officers who have maybe been there for a few years and may know some of the people that may benefit from the program. Thanks Ray. for the question, Ray. And Ray, are you uh, involved in law enforcement or have you been involved in law enforcement yourself? Do you mind my asking? I'm, I'm studying it. 
and um, it's something that I hope to have a, a future in. All right, great. Thanks for your question. Director Jackson, what do you think? Ray, thank you so much for your question. Uh, the short answer before I give the, the longer answer is yes, absolutely. Um, before going into any district, um, absolutely making sure that um, not only patrol officers, but also what we call um, neighborhood uh, collaboration officers or NCOs are also not only trained, but are providing their perspectives with regard to what they're seeing on the ground because they're the closest to it. And quite frankly, um, many of those officers by nature of how they execute their jobs um, know what the group dynamics look like, are intimately familiar with the players and are on first name bases with these players. And so we want to make sure that they are very much a part of the work. And that's baked into this model. Um, with regard to other officers, um, specifically those that are associated with the investigatory work and, and with the uh, strategic enforcement work, we're making sure that every district is being trained in what we call violence reviews um, before we move into those districts so that across the board, um, the, the rank and file are familiar uh, with what the strategy is and what the strategy looks like. This is not something that is, you know, just mandated by the police commissioner as a command going down. He's absolutely making sure that um, all of the team members who are going to be involved in this work, whether we're talking about intelligence officers, whether or not we're talking about district action team members or neighborhood collaboration officers and patrol officers are uh, being sufficiently trained, uh, have the information that they need to ensure that the partnership continues to be successful. And uh, when it comes to, to the personnel that you need to implement this strategy uh, in, a, in an expanded fashion, um, you know, we hear that there are hundreds of openings for jobs at City Hall. Uh, there are two or three hundred openings uh, at the Department of Public Works. Um, the mayor tells me constantly that it's not even a matter of money. It's a matter of finding people for these open jobs. Um, the kinds of jobs you're talking about, as we just mentioned before the break, you know, these are very delicate. These are these are psychologically uh, trying, uh, difficult, complicated, complex uh, interactions with people. I mean, so the kinds of folks you need to do this uh, intervention work uh, are very, very. Uh, it's a very specific skill. Uh, and when it comes to police, uh, you're also looking for a particular kind of cop, uh, a particularly uh, a, a, a cop who's trained in this, but also, you know, doesn't have a history of uh, bad relations within the community. And we are, uh, according to the police department, uh, Commissioner Harrison has told me for years now uh, that that he's really short. There, there's just not enough. There are not enough cops, uh, beat cops uh, on the street. Uh, and they're constantly hustling to try to recruit more. Uh, and then uh, again, the FOP, I know you don't, don't want to respond to them specifically, but they've made the case that uh, the way they put it is to create a unit of officers who have never had a citizen complaint is an impossible task in the world of proactive police work. So they're basically saying the kinds of police officers that you're looking for to do this kind of work uh, are few and far between, uh, and they're such a rarity uh, that there simply aren't enough of them. Um, how do you, how do you respond to that? 
Um, first, I would say that I believe that my partner in the commissioner and, and his team have done an excellent job with regard to vetting those folks that would initially become a part of this work uh, in the the gun violence unit. Um, that unit is, you know, made up of 40 to, to 50 folks, uh, as we shared with Baltimore before. Us scaling up across the city isn't going to require that we replicate that model across every single district. We are going to be taking advantage of economies of scale. And that's exactly what we've done as we've leaned into the Southwestern District. And so we're leveraging existing team members there. Uh, we've been very intentional about making sure that we don't outstrip BPD's current capacity by taking advantage of data-driven decisions. For example, um, group dynamics is a key consideration around whether or not we're moving into a district or not. Connectivity to the districts that we're in um, through intergroup play is something that we consider as we make decisions to move forward. Relatedly, we're looking at BPD capacity, right? And that's not just um, human capital capacity, but also infrastructure capacity. So looking to see which districts have more than one district action team so that we're able to uh, realign one of the two district action teams to do strategic enforcement and to do investigatory work, to make sure that those districts have what we call Baltimore Community Intelligence Centers, um, to make sure that we're leveraging, you know, camera access and intel um, personnel who are already in these districts are things that we're taking advantage of. Um, and at the heart, at the hub of it all is the central GBU, which is, um, for all intents and purposes, really um, the, the mechanism that is being used to make sure that the fidelity of the model is being honored that officers are effectively getting the support that they need to have and that we're all engaging with folks uh, in ways that are constitutional, led with empathy, and also are rooted in making sure that, um, that enforcement strategies are executed appropriately. And a GVU is a group violence unit, is that right? Yes, that's the BPD unit that is specifically assigned to work with my office to work with the state's attorney's office that's that's meant to work with all of our other partner agencies that unit is a unit that was put together um, to kickstart the work in the western but we aren't talking about new hires there right so again a reallocation of resources if you will so folks that would have been focusing on violence reduction and the crime fight in our community in general because they're sworn officers by definition, that's what they do, um, but making sure that we were bringing in folks with the right temperament, um, the right um, jackets uh, to do this work. And let me ask you to dig a little deeper into this notion of group-involved violence. Um, this is not the gang reduction strategy. This is the group violence reduction strategy. Um, when you talk about uh, violence being group involved. Um, I think this is something that that confuses a lot of folks. I know it confused me initially before you and I had a chance to to talk about it in depth. Um, share with listeners why it is that the group aspect of this is so important. 
Yeah, so um, I think it is first important to differentiate for Baltimoreans um, the definitions of gang and group, right? So gang is something that is statutorily defined, that um, has a lot of legality twisted up in it, if you will. Baltimore doesn't have many gangs, right? And that's not to say that we don't have gangs, but gangs typically cross jurisdictional lines. If you think about the Bloods, the Crips, um, if you think about BGF, these aren't specific to Baltimore, if you will. If we think about groups and how groups are defined, they're defined as social networks. So a group can be what many Baltimoreans call their, their crew, their clique. It could be a group of folks that you grew up with. It could be a group of folks that you go to school with or went to school with. I've got a group. I've got a few groups. The question um, boils down to whether or not the group or groups that I'm involved with are also involved in violence in our communities. And so as we focus on groups, we would do a disservice to Baltimore should we strictly focus on gangs when um, um, a lot of the violence that is being um, perpetrated against in our city is at the group level. And uh, as to uh, the callers uh, or an emailer's contention that uh, violent crime is going down across the country, in fact, there is uh, a report from the Nonpartisan Council on Criminal Justice that was reported on in the New York Times uh, about a month ago, uh, saying that in some major cities it did decline a little bit, uh, but that uh, most of the country has not yet uh, been able to recover from the surge of crime that occurred uh, concurrent with the COVID pandemic in 2020. So I want to make sure that uh, we have that information uh, out there. Let's go to the phones. Dr. Keita is on the line uh, from Baltimore. Welcome to Midday with Shante Jackson of the Mayor's Office of Neighborhood Safety and Engagement. Yes, good morning. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Ms. Jackson, I have two questions, uh, both kind of nerdy, uh, but that's okay because that's what I am. I, I wanted to know, is there some uh, legal or technical reason uh, why conflict resolution courses can't be taught to say st starting in fifth grade, going through high school, they don't have to be called conflict resolution. But I was wondering whether or not is is there some idea that if you actually try to teach conflict resolution, that some people will call that teaching religion or moral philosophy and and call it uh, against what you can do in public schools. That's one question. My other question is this. In terms of the squeegee workers, I find it interesting that they get classed, uh, in some sense, as vagrants. But if they were out selling grandma's fried chicken, uh, even without some sort of license, nobody would call them vagrants. And so I'm trying to understand why we can't just give licenses and particular zoning areas to these squeegee people. And, I, you know, I live in Baltimore but work elsewhere, so maybe these questions have been answered. But could you uh, address them for me, please, ma'am? No worries. Thank you for your question, Dr. Keita. And um, from geek to nerd, I appreciate the question. I believe that geeks and nerds make the world go round. Um, I am able to answer the first question around conflict resolution, um, but I'm hyper aware of what I know and what I don't know around your question around uh, the squeegee 
uh, workers and the definitions legally associated with that. I would defer to the city solicitor yeah, for I, that question. Yeah, and Dr. Keita, I do appreciate that question, but it's a bit off topic for today. It's certainly a topic we've yep. taken up before. But in terms of conflict re- resolution, um, yep. that is an important, uh, I think, dimension of a lot of curriculums in the city schools, as I understand it. Well, it's absolutely worth mentioning, especially when the problem analyses that we've conducted and what you hear Mayor Scott speak about frequently is that much of the violence in our city is attributed to um, an inability or an unwillingness to transform conflict in healthy ways. Um, I would offer that it is not against the law, if you will, or against any mandates uh, to teach restorative practices or conflict resolution in schools. In fact, that's happening in many um, Baltimore City schools right now, Um, and not just from the fifth grade forward, but elementary, elementary, middle, and high schools. Um, In fact, Monsey's just awarded um, uh, St. Francis Neighborhood Center um, funds and B-theory funds for social emotional learning and development, which conflict resolution is very much a part of, um, through our ARPA dollars. Many of our schools are restorative practice schools and have mediation services there. And even the school resource officers uh, or who are equivalent to school police officers have been trained in restorative practices, right? So um, that we are engaging young folks in a different way around conflict transformation. And I think the last thing that I would share here, Tom, is we're in the implementation phase right now to roll out school-based specialists who are gonna work with young people in three of Baltimore City's high schools around conflict resolution, around emotional regulation, and um, really partnering with the district to create um, more positivity um, in school climates. Shante Jackson is the director of the Mayor's Office of Neighborhood Safety and Engagement here in Baltimore. We'll have more with Director Jackson after a quick break. To join us, 410-662-8780. Our email is midday at wypr.org, and you can tweet us at midday. WIPR. And before we go to a break, each week here on Midday, it is our practice to read the names of people who have lost their lives to violence in Baltimore City. And we list their names on the Midday webpage. We do so to stand in witness to their untimely deaths and to remember their families and friends in their hour of grief. So far in 2023, as we mentioned, 42 people have been murdered in Baltimore. Police have released the identity of a person whose death was first reported the week before last. He is Nathaniel Dubbs. He was 18 years old. Four people fell victim to homicide in our city last week. They are Anthony Dante Miles, age 39. Jeremy Stewart, age 28. Renice Jones, age 41. And Winter Johnson, he was 28 years old. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. We'll be right back.
This is your public radio, 88.1 WYPR. Welcome back to Midday. I'm Tom Hall. If you've just joined us, we're talking about the group violence reduction strategy, which lies at the core of Baltimore Mayor Brandon Scott's plan to reduce violent crime in our city. My guest is Shante Jackson, the director of the Mayor's Office of Neighborhood Safety and Engagement. She's with us until the top of the hour, 410-662-8780. Our email, midday at wypr.org, and you can tweet us at midday. WIPR. And Director Jackson, we have a question about what's known as displacement. Uh, If a crime goes down in one district, it's simply because it's moved to a different area of the city. There's some uh, data that, that, uh, you know, basically debunks that uh, supposition. We have a Gmail from Bill, and he says, I live on the eastern border of the western district. Crimes involving weapons have increased dramatically in our neighborhood last year and this year. Perhaps the bad guys are just moving around the city. Uh, what's your response to Bill? What What does the data show us when it comes to uh, this this assumption that crime just moves from one place to another? Yeah, so uh, just before I answer uh, Bill's question, if I could, Tom, I think I would be remiss if I didn't thank you for being very intentional about honoring the light of folks who have transitioned um, from us on every show. It means more to families than I think folks realize when we call people's names out loud instead of them being numbers. So thank you. Well, you're welcome. It's something we've felt uh, is important to do for quite a number of years now. Yeah, yeah. So Bill, coming to your question, I would say that this is a question that uh, many of us who were doing this work asked our technical advisors very early on. I mean, long before we were starting to see results yield in the Western District, how could we be sure that we weren't going to wind up displacing um, group violence from one neighborhood to or one district into another district? And so we did charge them with doing some um, sophisticated level of analyses here uh, associated with the work. Um, on Monsi's website, you can find the report from the University of Pennsylvania, their Crime and Justice Policy Lab, in which they, um, in a lot of detail, explain the four different types of displacement analyses that they conducted uh, in order to determine that we weren't seeing um, uh, spatial displacement uh, as a result of the group violence reduction strategy. I will say that that's going to be something that we continue to look at because if we are going to see um, any benefits and or any challenges associated with movement, it would be in those districts that are adjacent to the district that we're in. Now, it's why we've been very intentional about not hopping from the Western District clear over to the Southeastern or to the Eastern District, but really making sure that those group dynamics that are interconnected, um, that districts that are adjacent to each other, that districts that have the BPD capacity that would allow us to move is the direction in which we're headed. When you say you live on the Eastern side of the Western District, we know that the Western and the Central kind of meet up at Pennsylvania and North Avenue, for those of us that know Baltimore City very well. It is one of the reasons why the Central District is next in the list, um, because we know that 
groups have no idea they aren't paying attention to where the, the district boundary lines are as they conduct their quote unquote business um and why we've very effectively been able to move into the southwestern district already see that we're yielding 27 percent reductions in fatals and non-fatal shootings in that district and we're still on target to move into the central district next quarter so look for us we're coming your way and uh, in a couple of hours, you and the mayor and the police commissioner and a uh, person from the uh, state's attorney's office uh, are going to hold a press conference to announce the uh, launch of a public safety accountability dashboard. What can you tell us yes. about that? I can't tell you how excited I am about the public safety accountability dashboard. Um, it is um, the realization of a promise that the mayor made very early on with regard to transparency, um, in regard to, you know, working with city, state and local, uh, I'm sorry, and federal agencies to be thoughtful about criminal justice system changes that need to be made or improved upon in order to keep our city safe. And we partnered with Baltimoreans to build this. Um, after we mocked it up with um, our, our principal members of the Criminal Justice Coordinating Council, we had four community feedback sessions that were very well attended and left us with dozens and dozens of pieces of information that um, made its way into what we're publishing today at three o'clock. Literally, Baltimore's never demonstrated this level of accessibility before when it relates to public safety data. And this is just the first version. And we'll hear um, all the news, good, bad, or indifferent? Yes. Yes. So, so I think if anything, I'm hopeful that Baltimore has seen that um, Monsi has has <laughs> shared uh, when we're doing well and when we aren't doing well, very transparently. So this dashboard will allow folks to look at what's going on at the neighborhood level, at the Baltimore Police Department district level. You you can it'll be a bird's eye view into what's going on in your neighborhood, but also any neighborhood in the city that you want to take a look at comparative analysis in the city as a whole, good, bad and indifferent. Uh, I can only give you about 30 seconds to answer this because we're almost out of time. But our uh, okay. partners at the Baltimore Banner uh, did a report that noted that uh, about a third of the people who've been shot this year, so in the first two months of 2023, were 18 years old or younger. Um, yep. Any any insight into why there is this spike in youth violence in particular? Yeah, so um, the, the juxtaposition is just interesting, right? Seeing the overall numbers go down while simultaneously seeing our youth numbers go up. What I will say is this, um, we, we are doing work actively as an administration uh, to make sure that we're paying more attention to young folks who are at risk. And the mayor's just launched an initiative a few weeks ago that brings the Baltimore City Public School System, the Health Department, the Office of Children and Family Success, African-American Male Engagement, DJS, and others together to really do the work of uncovering um, what's happening here while continuing to do the work that's been underway around um, connecting our young people to opportunity and steering them away from violence. Shante Jackson is the director of the Mayor's Office of Neighborhood Safety and Engagement. And looking ahead to Thursday here on Midday, Mayor Brandon Scott will join me for another installment of our Midday with the Mayor 
series. So, Director Jackson, I, as I mentioned before, I'm grateful to you for your generosity uh, appearing on the show on a regular basis to, to keep us uh, up to date with what's going on in these uh, very, very important efforts to reduce violence in the city. So thank you. Thank you, Tom. And tomorrow here on Midday, we're going to take a look at the situation in the Middle East, in Israel, as well as the continuing conflict in Ukraine. That's coming up tomorrow on Midday on Foreign Affairs. I'll speak with a reporter from Haaretz, and I'll share some reporting that I did when I was in Israel recently, uh, not only about the violence on the West Bank, but as well uh, about the protests against the Netanyahu government's efforts to uh, sort of dismantle and uh, greatly attenuate the authority of the courts in Israel. And we'll also talk with a business person who's been involved in Ukraine for a long time. Coming up now, it's here and now, so stick around at the top of the hour. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks so much for being with us. I appreciate it. Have a great day. This is your public radio, 88.1 WYPR.